Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood straight, stood up straight and began praising God. But the leaders of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, but not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Would you all pray with me? Gracious God, we come to you this day longing for your redemption. We wait with eager hope for your healing power and your healing touch to come into our broken world and to make all things new. Show us your ways, O Lord. Open our hearts and our minds to the wisdom of your scripture and the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Move in us this day with my words or in spite of my words and help us all to better see your life, your truth, and your love as it moves among us in your creation. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever felt the weight of the world pressing down on your shoulders? Has that weight ever grown so heavy that it seemed like you could no longer stand up straight? Has it ever seemed like the only thing that you could see was the dusty ground beneath your feet? Where do we look for hope in those moments? Where do we look for life? Where do we search for God's redemption? For the woman in today's passage from Luke, these were not merely abstract questions. For 18 years, a spirit had seized the bones in her body and had left her quite unable to stand up straight. For 18 years, her view of the world had been limited to the dusty ground beneath her feet. 
At many points during those long and painful years, she must have asked what she had done to deserve that fate. She must have wondered if God was ever going to restore her life. She must have wondered if she would ever experience the hope and the promise and the beauty that she once knew. Our hearts should swell with pity and compassion for this daughter of Abraham. But she was not alone in her suffering that day. As we read this story, we must not look so quickly past the other figure in that room. We must not forget those who had suffered with these pains and doubts for more than 600 years. You see, at the time of Jesus' life and ministry, the entire nation of Israel was suffering under the weight of political and social oppression. The entire nation of Israel was bent over by the heavy weight on its shoulders. For most of my life, I think I looked right past this. I usually assumed that the Israel we read so much about in the Bible was a strong and a prosperous nation. I read the stories about the glory of King David and the splendor of King Solomon. And I assumed that those times must have basically represented the life and history of Israel as a whole. I hardly could have been further from the truth. The glory years of David and Solomon had occurred almost a thousand years before the life of Christ. Shortly before the, after the reign of King Solomon, though, the kingdom of Israel was divided by political turmoil, and it slowly began to unravel. The final peace fell almost 600 years before the life of Christ. At that time, a great army from Babylon swept through the region in conquest and burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. In the centuries that followed, God's chosen people had been powerless. They had watched helplessly as their land and their people had been tossed to and fro by a long line of foreign empires. By the time of Jesus' life, it was Rome rather than Babylon that ruled over the promised land. The suffering was the same, though. Their shoulders and their backs were bent over by the weight, and all that they could see was the dusty ground beneath their feet. At times like those, where do we look for hope? Where do we look for life? Where do we search for God's redemption? In the time of Jesus, as in our own time, many people placed their hopes in power. It's not hard to understand why they would do so. The oppression of Israel had been imposed by systems of power. It's only too reasonable, then, to assume that their liberation would require them to succeed within those same systems of power. There was just one problem, though. Israel was small. Israel was weak. And Rome was so big and strong. And so the people of Israel looked to God for their deliverance. 
Specifically, they looked for a God of mighty and awesome deeds. They looked for a God who would raise a new king from the house of David to lead them to the freedom of their own power. And at the center of these hopes rested the law. The law didn't merely offer a way for them to reach heaven. Instead, the law held the key for Israel's liberation on earth. The book of Deuteronomy, which contains much of the Jewish law, was not written as a self-help spiritual guide to salvation, but was meant to teach the people how to live in the promised land in the way that God intended for them. Near the end of this book, in Deuteronomy 28, it's written, if you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all of his commandments that I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come to you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Later in the same chapter, however, they were told that if they do not obey the law, they would be ruled by foreign kingdoms and that they would suffer from severe and lasting maladies. Imagine then what was at stake in the hearts and minds of those tired faces in the synagogue when Jesus called that single crippled woman to the front. What was Jesus doing? Hadn't Israel suffered enough? At that moment, they did not need small acts of kindness that offered temporary comforts, especially if those acts of kindness threatened to violate the law. Israel needed deliverance. They needed the mighty acts of God, and those would only be released in the world if they obeyed the law. And sure, sometimes that meant waiting one extra day to heal the sick, one extra day to comfort the sorrowful. Come back tomorrow, and then you'll be healed. It might seem heartless, but what else could they do? You see, in order to find freedom in the real world, they needed power, not compassion. They needed strength, not tenderness. Don't you see? That's just the way the world works. But that day, in the synagogue, Jesus stood before them and asked one simple question. What if it is not? Jesus' short earthly ministry was filled with countless miracles, healings, and wise teachings. One thing that he never offered to his followers, however, was a new or a secret way to power. To follow Christ is to follow a savior who could have, at any moment, called down 10 legions of angels to reorder the world in any way that he saw fit. But he never did, not to save himself and not to save God's chosen people. Because of this fact, I think that Christians have often had a tendency to assume that Jesus wasn't all that concerned with life in this world. And yet Jesus' response to suffering around him was never to tell us to wait patiently for the sweet hereafter. 
Instead, when he was met with illnesses, he healed. When he was met with hunger, he fed. When he was met with the outcast, he loved. And when he was met with faith, he taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come to earth. To show us the way to that kingdom, however, Jesus did not need to show us a new way to power. Instead, he needed to reveal to us an entirely new vision of the world in which we live. It can and it should be deeply unsettling to listen to the words of the Gospels. In those pages, everything that we thought we knew about this world is unraveled before our eyes. Up becomes down, day becomes night, the rich become poor, emperors are pushed to the side of the stage, while a meek and humble teenage girl from a lonely corner of an unimportant province becomes the queen of all creation. And it all happened because of the most incomprehensible mystery of all. The Lord of all the universe so emptied and humbled God's self as to live among us as a servant and then showed us the way to eternal life by dying upon a cross. It is truly a world turned upside down. And so it is in this story. When Jesus calls this woman to the front of the synagogue to heal her, he's not merely challenging an obscure interpretation of Sabbath law. Instead, Jesus' inviting words and healing touch challenge all of our ideas about what it is to be redeemed in a broken body, what it is to be redeemed as a broken people. He calls us to reconsider just how it is that freedom and life will be attained in God's kingdom. But strangely, as the response of the leader of the synagogue reminds us, this isn't always the message that we want to hear. In his book, Blue Note Preaching and a Post-Soul World, Otis Moss III writes, When a prophet dares to expose to the light a congregation that has been living in darkness, The initial reaction is to wince in pain. Our eyes have adjusted to the dark. Our world has been designed by shadows, not truth. When all of our hopes, expectations, ideas, skills, and energies have been formed around one idea of the world, it can be hard and painful and scary to walk away from it. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king who will govern our affairs and who will lead us bravely into battle. But as the bones of the woman's body were released and her head was lifted high with praise, Jesus was revealing to us another way, the true way. He was reminding the people of Israel that it was not Rome who laid the foundations of the world, It was not Rome who guarded the gates of abundant life. It was not Rome who dictated to God what God must do to free God's people. We've just gone through this wonderful sermon series talking about the grand arc 
of God's story as it is revealed to us in the Bible. We talked about how God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through Christ Jesus, is at work in a world that has been broken by sin. We heard about the ways that Christ draws all people, and ultimately all of creation, into himself so that we may once more know God's abundant life. As we talk about that story, we often use words like creation and new creation. These words are essential, but not so that we can argue about the precise mechanical origins of the universe long, long ago. Instead, these words teach us to recognize the true character and the possibilities that are woven into the world in which we live today. To call the earth creation is to see ourselves surrounded by the vast possibilities of God's love. It is to see that hope and life are not found somewhere up in the clouds where only the mighty may tread. Instead, it is to see God's hope and God's life in the bodies and the love of our neighbors, of creatures, and of the very soil underneath our feet. When we learn to see the world as God's creation, we'll suddenly realize that the true path to freedom and healing and abundant life on this earth is not in the power that we achieve, but is in the gifts that we give. And in against everything that Rome has taught us to believe, Jesus shows us that it is not in mighty acts of conquest but in humble acts of mercy and love that God's redeeming and sustaining and healing presence is released to transform our world. When we give our lives to Christ, we become a part of this story. We become vessels of God's redeeming love, and we also find our freedom. For the source of this life is the very love of God moving in creation, and that is something that Rome can never guard, never regulate, never control. But this is such a hard lesson to learn. 2,000 years later, it is still so tempting for us to look for our salvation in this world up the steps of power. So often, our answer to the pain and the suffering and the oppression and the brokenness of our world is to look with longing eyes towards penthouses and boardrooms, senate chambers and oval offices, and to say, that is where our hope is found. What we need is for the people in those rooms to think like me, to talk like me, to hold my values, one day we'll have the power, and then, then our backs will be straightened. Then our heads will be lifted high. Then our world will be made right. It's not wrong for us to care about our governments and our businesses and our institutions. They're important. We should want them to be just and fair and truthful but we must never mistake them to be our true sources of hope and life. 
If we do, their vision of the world quickly becomes our own. God's creation fades away and is replaced by a ruthless world of power and competition. And as we become entangled in the endless rush and frenzy of that world, we suddenly find that we just don't have the time to spend with our family and our friends. We don't have the energy to listen to and to care for the people that we love. We don't have the attention to notice, much less to touch, the bodies of our neighbors that are crippled with pain and doubt and worry and disease. We don't have the ease to delight in God's creation or the space in our hearts to worship God with humility and quietness. Sorry, we say to our friends and our family, our neighbors and our God, I just don't have time for you today. Come back tomorrow. Maybe then you can be healed. And as we sit in exhaustion at the end of another long week, we sit back and we wish that it was different. But we say there's nothing else we can do. That's just the way our world works. But it's in those moments that Jesus once again stands before us and asks us one simple question. What if it is not? Amen.